Hi there, welcome to Active Intelligence. I'm Aaron Ironside. I hope you'll spend the next half an hour or so with me as we take a look at one of the all-time hot-button issues and something that many of us didn't think we'd live to see, the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade. We're talking abortion today on Active Intelligence. On today's program, I catch up with Andrew Moore. He's a Kiwi living in Washington and working for one of the biggest pro-life lobby groups in North America. And of course, it's pro-life activists around the world who are watching with bated breath to see what the Supreme Court does in response to some new abortion laws, particularly this time in Mississippi, where it could be that the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land, overturns the benchmark case on the issue of abortion, Roe v. Wade. Hundreds gathered outside the court, both sides vividly demonstrating what's at stake. Mississippi defended its law passed in 2018, but blocked by lower courts that would ban virtually all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, at odds with nearly 50 years of Supreme Court rulings. Life is, is so precious, and, and these babies have a chance now, as 48 years ago, they, they may not have. Starting with Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court has repeatedly ruled that states cannot ban abortion before the age of viability, around 24 weeks into a pregnancy. That's why Mississippi's law is a direct challenge to Roe. This is an individual liberty interest for women because it has such a profound effect on our health and our lives and our future. The more liberal justices warn today that overturning Roe would undermine public confidence. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. Chief Justice John Roberts suggested he would uphold the Mississippi law without explicitly overturning Roe. If it really is an issue about choice, why is 15 weeks not enough time? But several of the court's conservatives appeared willing to rule for abortion opponents who say Roe was wrongly decided and should be overturned, even though abortion rights have been the law of the land for almost 50 years. If we think that uh, the prior precedents are seriously wrong. Why then doesn't the history of this court's practice with respect to those cases tell us that the right answer is actually to return to the position of neutrality? If the Supreme Court did overturn Roe, it wouldn't ban abortion. It would leave it up to individual states. Experts on local laws say 24 states are either certain or very likely to make the procedure illegal. Some already have bans that would go into effect the moment Roe was overturned. You can hear the political machinations of the Supreme Court there in full flight. Is this about the fact that for the first time in an awfully long time, the Supreme Court is stacked with more Republican justices? Or is it that finally the science and the law have caught up with each other and it's time to review Roe v. Wade? We will wait and see what happens. Will it be bounced back to the individual states? Of course, those who are pro-choice are already banging the drums. They're saying what it's going to set up is that in a world where some of the U.S. states have banned abortion, states like California can expect the most morbid kind of tourism of all time. 
According to a recent study by the Guttmacher Institute, if Roe versus Wade falls and 26 states implement a total ban on abortion, California could see a near 3,000 percent in rise in women of reproductive age driving to the state for abortion access. That's roughly 1.4 million women, the majority of whom would likely come from one state, Arizona. We're preparing to assume that we'll have um, a, a huge impact on our health centers. And we're preparing for that both in, in workforce, in, in our capabilities and in, in technologies and telehealth and how we can, you know, expand and reach patients. And I know we're not the only health centers doing that. The idea that because you put a ban on abortion means that people won't need abortions mm -hmm. is illogical. Um, people will need the same type of health care that they're getting today just because you put a barrier in front of them tomorrow doesn't mean that the need goes away. So it's not just about the end of the pregnancy um, in terms of physical health. You'll see in those states that restrict access to abortion that people will um, be more likely to be in poverty, will be less able to take care of their existing children, and they'll also um, be, they'll have children at a time when they weren't ready. And that actually can have emotional consequences as well. We find worse maternal bonding for women who are forced to carry that pregnancy to term than for women who are able to get their abortion and have a child later under better circumstances. I cannot understand the logic of that academic. Let me get this right. According to her, low maternal bonding of an unwanted pregnancy is worse for the baby than killing the baby. That's insane with a capital I. I do not understand that logic precisely because there is no logic there at all. All that is politics and ideology dressed up as academia. And that's part of the problem here, isn't it? Is that politics has infiltrated every part of this discussion, as has ideology, making it very difficult to have a proper conversation with anyone about this topic without things getting very heated, despite which side of the issue you might find yourself. I caught up with a Christchurch boy, Andrew Moore, living these days in Washington and working for a pro-life lobby group there and asked him how a Kiwi found himself right at the centre of what is perhaps the critical moment in the pro-life movement. It did begin, well, back in 2006 or so when I started um, buying pro-life t-shirts from America and shipping them into New Zealand and selling them on to my friends at cost just to sort of get the pro-life message out there. And from that, that kind of evolved into um, founding a, uh, a youth pro-life group, Pro-Life NZ. And uh, so fast forward to, what was it, early 2011, I believe. Um, and we had Brian Kemper and Jill Stanek over from the States doing a nationwide speaking tour. And it was, during that tour that um, Jill actually mentioned uh, she had a daughter and you know to cut a long story short I ended up marrying the daughter and uh, so living here over in the States now we've got four kids and um, I've been working full time in the pro-life movement as I say back from when I was in New Zealand and until the present day so well, before we take a look at what's happening in the US right now, why don't we do a bit of compare and contrast when you think of pro-life activism in New Zealand versus America, kind of different places, same issue. Are they handled in the same way? What are the differences? I would say um, there's two key differences that 
come to mind. Um, the first is the media. Um, I think the media in New Zealand is a lot more controlled uh, by the government and um, by by um, groups that you know support abortion rights. And frankly, the the issue of abortion is just so taboo in New Zealand. Um, it's just not talked about that much. Whereas over in America, um, of course, there are there are uh, media outlets that are not friendly at all. Uh, but there there is a greater range, and um, the issue of abortion does come up on a quite regular basis. So it keeps at the front of uh, the minds of Americans. And then the other area is activism um, or advocacy. Even we have a very very strong uh, pro life pregnancy center movement over here in the states. We have. 2,700 uh, pro-life pregnancy centers throughout the nation, and um, that you know the uh, the volunteers there just um, contribute so much to their communities, uh, supporting the mothers and the babies and the families, um, both before the child's birth and after. And then you have the the activists, uh, perhaps uh, on the streets outside the the abortion facilities. Um, fairly consistent presence outside abortion facilities uh, across the nation. Um, and then, of course, we have the political arm, um, more the advocates who are, you know, very active in state capitals, state legislatures, and also in Washington, D.C., um, advocating for life. Well, let's talk about that political one more today. Many pro-life activists around the world assume that the Roe v. Wade case that seems to be the legal precedent for the issue of abortion in America and then almost by extension to the rest of at least the Western world was assumed was a piece of law and a judgment that was untouchable, that in many respects this issue was now done and dusted from a legal point of view. And yet the Supreme Court is now reviewing that, looking at that. How on earth did Roe v. Wade, after all these years, suddenly become something that uh, the Supreme Court's willing to review? Yeah, absolutely, Aaron. Um, you know, the Supreme Court handed down their decision in 1973, and the abortion industry, the abortion lobby, um, I think they they thought that the fight was over and that abortion rights were here to stay. And... Uh, but no, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, for the last 50 years, the pro-life movement has continued fighting. Um, and far from being settled law, as some say, um, the the issue of abortion is one of the most contentious uh, issues uh, alive in um, you know public discourse here in America. And the other part of it is, is that the pro-life movement has really st- strategically been playing the long game for the last 50 years. Um, as I say, through the the pro-life pregnancy centres um, and the activists, you know, on the street, you know, the March for Life or um, protesting Planned Parenthood or just, uh, you know, peacefully witnessing outside abortion facilities, and then we also have um, so it's like three pronged because then we have the political groups, um, as I say, based across the nation in, in all fifty states, and kind of centred in Washington D.C. Um, we just have some incredibly focused and driven uh, people who um, are able to grasp uh, the, the long game aspect of this. And they have been laying the groundwork for decades um, to get us to this point. So you could go back to um, 
2016, for instance, recent history, um, when Donald Trump was running for president and, you know, understandably, uh, perhaps a, a lot of groups were hesitant to get on board the Trump train, so to speak. Um, but other groups looked ahead and they, they, they said, we're going to endorse Trump. We're going to do everything we can to get him elected. Before they did that, they secured promises from him. Um, in fact, my group, the Susan B. Anthony List, um, presented a letter to President Trump and, well, then candidate Trump, and he, he signed the letter making four commitments of what he would do for life if he was elected president. One of them, crucially, was to nominate um, Supreme Court justices who would take a constitutional approach to the issue of abortion. And as we saw, we had um, three Supreme Court justices appointed and confirmed during uh, President Trump's presidency. You know, we had Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and then Amy Coney Barrett. And, you know, without that transformation of the Supreme Court and frankly, without the transformation of courts across the nation, we wouldn't be where we are today. So, um, well, let's take a look at that particular thing you've just mentioned, because there'd be some that would say that rather than reviewing the law, it just became political. There were enough Republican pro-life Supreme Court justices, and that was the thing that has brought us here. Nothing to do with actually a weakness in the law itself, that uh, a part of the American political system that's meant to be free from political influence has now been swayed by political influence and that that's itself quite a, a large problem. So talk to that on the one hand and to the actual legal arguments that have now been raised that are being considered on the other. Right, absolutely. Um, th there are concerns, of course, that the court has become political. Thankfully, however, I believe that the justices um, that we are hoping will uh, vote to overturn Roe are doing so not out of any obligation to any political party or ideology, but they truly are looking to the Constitution and saying, you know, Roe was wrongly decided. It was decided on outdated science. It was founded based on made-up um, understandings of what was in the Constitution. And these justices are going to say, ultimately, the issue of abortion is not for us as justices to decide. It's for the people of America. It's for the people of the states to pass laws and uh, determine where they want to draw the line on this issue. So in that regard, of course, now we see states like Texas with its heartbeat law and other states now, in a sense, uh, making progress in a pro-life kind of direction. Is this part of, in a sense, though, how divided we all are now that even the different US states are quite different from each other in the way that they wish to handle this issue? Yeah, absolutely. You can see uh, the division in terms of, you know, where, where different states come down on the issue of life. Um, however, take Texas, for example, they, they did pass that uh, heartbeat bill um, ensuring that children with a detectable heartbeat would be protected under law. But one thing the media has not really focused on is that in the same breath, essentially, the Texas legislature released a hundred uh, increased funding for um, moms and families uh, in difficult situations by a hundred million dollars. So 
for those uh, in the media or the pro-abortion lobby who say that the pro-life movement doesn't care about uh, a child after they're born, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. Take me back to this uh, comment you made about the science being poor in which the, the, the Roe v. Wade decision was, was made. What was that weakness exactly? Yeah, absolutely. So back in 73, you know, ultrasounds, for example, were incredibly grainy, um, very little to see, you know, when you're looking at the ultrasound to, to make out that that's a human life in there. Um, and of course, just look now at the 40 ultrasounds and everything that um, mums will have on their fridge. And then um, the science of fetal development, um, there was just so much that wasn't known back in 73. Now, of course, we know that children can feel pain from as early as 15 weeks. Um, we, we know all these details about um, how many times the heart is beaten by 15 weeks. I, um, I won't quote that because I don't recall. But um, yeah, so much science about the development of the, the child and then crucially, the uh, age of viability, which um, is so arbitrary. Back in 1973, I believe uh, children could survive from as early as 28 weeks. We just had, uh, there was a little boy, Curtis in Alabama, celebrated his first birthday. Uh, he was born at 21 weeks and set the Guinness World Record for the, the youngest uh, premature child to survive. So it just goes to show that drawing the line at viability, it's, it's a moving standard and it's not one based in um, science. It's, it's just um, subjective and it's not a suitable way to determine which of us gets human rights and which doesn't. Those who are, of course, pro-choice don't seem to really care a great deal about these sorts of facts because they're not disputing that it's a life. They're saying that the number one idea is that that life is growing inside of a woman and therefore the woman is the arbiter of what happens inside of her, not the law, not pro-life advocates. Does any of this change those arguments from the the other side of the this particular issue yeah you make a good point there aaron there are definitely those on the extreme side of the abortion lobby who truly don't care um what it is that they're killing um however oh, at the end of the day it's not those people that we're trying to convince it's the roughly 80 percent of uh everyday americans in the middle who when they are presented with the science of fetal development and the humanity of the child in the womb, their hearts are softened uh, towards that child, that victim, and they do, the polling backs this up, they do support uh, more compassionate restrictions on abortion um, throughout all 50 states. So the Supreme Court wants to bounce this back essentially and say, it's the will of the people in the individual states. But doesn't that turn it back into a political football where potentially every time there's a change in administration, there's going to be a change in law regarding abortion? You know, that is a possibility. However, um, if we have a Supreme Court precedent that that permits the states to pass, you know, compassionate restrictions on abortion, um, there is, uh, it's going to make it a lot more difficult for um, lower level courts to overturn pro-life laws that are passed at the state level. So, um, and that in turn will make it less likely for uh, pro-abortion groups to attempt to pass um, or, or overturn pro-life laws in the states because 
of the legal precedent that has been established. We know that once this does happen, of course, uh, the pro-choice side of this argument will have to start beating their drums fairly loudly because they're going to be objecting to the changes they see. What's going to be the future of lobbying around this issue? Are we going to see, in a sense, more lobbying on both sides? Is this going to sort of really ramp the issue up rather than put it to bed? Yeah, as you say, the issue is not going to be put to bed. You know, if the Supreme Court does overturn Roe, that's just the beginning of stage two of our fight. And the fight will be decentralized in a sense. It's going to go back to the states and um, the fight will happen there. What will the pro-choice people do, though, when they start advocating to have these potential new laws like the one in Texas overturned? What's their tactic going to be? Yeah, absolutely. I think their tactic is going to be um, the women in our state cannot afford to not have access to abortion. And it's going to be incumbent upon the pro-life movement to point out that that is not the fact that women do not in fact rely on abortion and that there are programs and services available to them so that they are able and empowered to choose life and there's a there's actually a new um organization being formed here in the states called her plan and the goal of this organization is to create a nationwide database uh for mothers and families uh, who are in a difficult situation and to empower them to choose life. And, and her plan will connect these women with all the services that are available to them, whether it's a car seat or um, diapers or, you know, whatever, whatever housing, food. It's, it's about connecting the women and making it easier for them to choose life. And so I think supporting mums and babies is going to be, really crucial in a post-row world. That making it easier to choose life is a, is a nice phrase because I think one of the things I hear the pro-choice people saying is you, you can't make someone have a baby who doesn't want to have a baby, which is how they perceive the sort of pro-life message is, well, you can't have an abortion, you must have the baby. And something about that sounds kind of off as well. How do you walk that line so that that isn't the message? Well, we, we just want to empower women so that they feel strong strong enough to choose life and um, to reject the lie that in order to uh, get ahead in life that they would have to allow their own child to be killed and w we do understand of course the terrible circumstances that many uh, mothers many families find themselves in with an unexpected pregnancy um, but we at the same time we believe that there, there are services and resources available to them if only they can be connected with them and of course if they go down to the local uh, Planned Parenthood or the, the local abortion facility they're going to be told you're not strong enough to do this on your own your best choice is death for your child and but these women are going to hear a completely different message when they are connected with the likes of her plan or a local pregnancy center they're going to hear you are strong enough to do this you know, um, and we're going to be there by your side um, for as long as as long as you need us. I'm wondering about sort of the generational attitudes. You mentioned how you know this is a real hot topic for people of our age, potentially a little bit older. But when I think about my young adult children and their friends, finding a pro-life person in their set 
is the needle in the haystack. It's almost as if the entire generation has bought hook, line and sinker the pro-choice argument around abortion. And for them, there is no discussion to be had. Are they going to be a more difficult generation to bring on board to the uh, the pro-life movement? Well, you know, Aaron, that's a good question. I think when you um, look around, you see that the, the next generation coming up is one that um, is really to think for themselves and to look at the science and follow the science. And more than ever, that science, uh, the science of fetal development is readily available. Now, while uh, the, the next generation may not want to pick the pro-life label, I think the polling is quite clear uh, across the board that when you break it down, most Americans and probably most Kiwis would be appalled to learn that abortion is permitted up until the moment of birth or that the unborn child can feel pain or just the statistics, you know, the, de- the details on the, uh, just how developed that child is in the womb and, and the, the, the way the needle is being moved on the, the age of viability at which a child can live and thrive. And so, as I say, when you break it down, you realize that it's not as black and white. Um, for instance, when polling is done on whether Americans support Roe v. Wade, the majority do support Roe. But when you poll and ask about what Roe permits, they they reject that because the, the fact is they're not they don't understand what Roe permits. Roe permits abortion up until birth for any reason. And so when you when you sort of step past the labels and the rhetoric and you just get down to what's really happening in an abortion and what the law permits, you do find that there is support out there among the people. Just finally, when you think of the uh, the country of your birth, give us some advice. We're in the middle of the long game, but it seems way, way longer. It's hard to imagine us getting to the place that uh, you're in at the moment in the US. What's your advice to the pro-life movement here in New Zealand? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as I say, we've been in the long game for a long time ourselves too. And, you know, we've been, we've been at a point where overturning Roe seemed like a pipe dream. I think one thing that we've done fairly successfully here in America is electing pro-life legislators and then holding them accountable. And not just holding them accountable, but being there to support them when they stick their neck out on our issue. Andrew Moore is entirely right, of course, that it comes down to politicians being willing to put forward legislation that protects the unborn child. And we've simply not seen enough gumption, backbone, strength, conviction from those on the right in New Zealand. Uh, I think many of us have observed over many years that it doesn't seem to matter whether it's a conservative or a liberal government when it comes to abortion laws. But of course, what that has meant is that the left has continued to advance its policies and programs around abortion. And that's why we now have one of the most extreme abortion laws on the planet 
But the hope is that things can be overturned and perhaps because we so often take our lead from the US on so many cultural and political issues that perhaps this is a bright light not just for the Americans but for the rest of us as well. After all, it changes the game if you can't keep using Roe v. Wade forever and a day. And it does make sense, doesn't it, that a decision made in 1973 might be worth reviewing. We know so much more. Technology, science has told us so much more about the developing human inside that tummy that, uh, well, frankly, it's time to review uh, which point we agree that it's time to start protecting the unborn child. So it's the right thing that this conversation is happening. Let's hope the Supreme Court has the gumption to actually decide that Roe v. Wade has done its time. Whether that will solve it, well, that remains to be seen. Keeping in mind that in America, of course, they are almost like 50 countries, uh, the 50 states. But that being said, perhaps it is important to let people actually decide because we've not really had that opportunity too often. However, the cultural war is in full flight because now we have to convince our young people that those unborn children are worthy of protecting and that their life matters too. How do we convince them? That's the million dollar question. Well, the answer is we've got to start trying. We've got to start doing more to keep letting people realize that it's not the choice of just the mother. It's both lives that matter. And we must advocate for both of them moving forward. Love to hear your thoughts. What do you see about the American situation? Do you think it'll make a difference in New Zealand? Get in touch. Visit the website activeintelligence.nz and make sure you hit that subscribe button so that all the episodes arrive directly into your inbox. And we'll see you next time on Active Intelligence.